Seems like only yesterday, but it was 46 years ago, this past summer, that uh, God brought us to Cottage Hill, to Mobile, to live and work with Brother Fred. The day after we arrived, I met on the sidewalk at Cottage Hill, Ed Keys. From that day to this, he's been a great blessing to my life. Amen. And thank you so much, Jay Ever, for singing till the storm passes by before I preach today. What an honor to be back in Mobile. What an honor to be with you. Uh, you know, I had an unusual experience this past week. My nine-year-old grandson was in my office, and I was preparing to come down here today. And uh, I had the opportunity of leading him to Christ not long ago, and our pastor allowed me to baptize him. But he said, a Pop said, where are you going this week to tell people about Jesus? I said, I'm going to Mobile, Alabama. Now, he's never met Brother Fred, never seen him. We've been trying to protect him all that we could. <laughs> but he's heard about Brother Fred all of his life. And uh, he said, well, Pop, let me ask you a question. Are you going to see your blaster this coming Sunday? <laughs> I said, yes, son, that's about what he's been since I was 19 years old. He's been blasting me all the way and still is. But I tell you, I love him. There's no way I can tell you how much Brother Fred means to me. He's been the most profound influence on my life. And he's been there for me when I needed him. And I'll always, always be grateful for that. I've come today not to reminisce. I've come today to share the gospel, the glorious gospel of grace that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me in the New Testament to Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 17. I'm speaking this morning on this subject, the land of beginning again. Have you ever wished that you could go back and live part or all of your life over? Have you ever wished that God would give us what we call in the game of life and the game of golf a mulligan on certain things that have happened? Better yet, have you ever said something and as soon as those words passed your lips and got out to about right here, you would have given anything if you could have shoved them back in and taken them back? Well, praise God in the spiritual realm... There is a land of beginning again. I know of no one else who makes this offer of a new life in Christ than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So with that in mind, I want you to stand with me out of respect and reverence for God's holy word. And we will begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, as you've heard before, anytime there's a therefore in the Bible... You need to know what it's there for. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Praise God, there are 312 new creation promises in the New Testament alone who tell us who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ once we become one of his blood-bought, born-again children. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Praise God, the past is finished and gone. It's all under the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, all things are of God, that is for a believer, for a child of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. The word reconcile means to draw back. God draws us back to himself through the Holy Spirit, 
who in turn introduces us to Jesus. And because the Holy Spirit has convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, because he's convinced us of our need of Christ, the Lord Jesus receives us, enters into our life, changes us, and makes us a new person. But listen, that's not all that there is. And sometimes we forget this next part. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. It isn't just enough that we're reconciled to him. He wants to use us to help others to be drawn back to him and to be reconciled to him as well. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses to them. I want you to underline or circle that word imputing if you don't mind marking in your Bible. It's a bookkeeping term. It means to credit to one's account. Let me explain it to you in the spiritual realm like this. Before I became a Christian, if you began to list all of my sins, they were so many you could have started on that wall right there at the top, gone all the way to the bottom. By the time you finished that list, it would have filled up that entire wall. But one windy October day in 1956, on a mill village where I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, my pastor, who's now in heaven, took the Bible and explained to me how to become a Christian. He made sure that I understood what it meant to receive Christ as my Savior. And I chose of my own free will, my own free volition, my own accord. I chose to invite Christ to come into my life. The moment I did that, he took his blood and praised his holy name. He wiped that slate completely clean. And I stood before God without guilt in his sight and without any of those charges being credited to my account. And from that windy October day in 1956 until right now, when God has looked at me, he didn't see my sins, my faults, my mistakes, how I've stumbled, how I've fallen, how I've blown it. All he's seen is Jesus. And he's seen that I'm covered with his blood and with his righteousness. And from that day to this, he has treated me the same way that he treats the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus. Everything God's given to Jesus, he's given to me. Everything Jesus has I have. Everything Jesus hopes to ever do, he will do that in my life. And not just for me, praise God. He woke me up about nine years later and said, go and tell everyone to the four corners of the earth what I've done for you and what I can do for them. Praise God. If I didn't know anything else about God, that's enough to keep me going right there for the rest of my life. And has committed to us, here it is the second time, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we're ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? It's one who represents his king at the court of another. This world's not our home. We're just passing through. And you and I are to be representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. For he that is God the Father made him that is God the Son, the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. Think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only perfect, spotless, stainless, sinless human being that ever lived. And yet that qualified him to be our sin bearer. And when he went to the cross... He took all of our sin, all the sin of the world upon himself, died in our place as our substitute, and was the only one that met God's demand for righteous, sinless perfection. Why? He tells us in the rest of the verse that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. And ladies and gentlemen, you're hearing from a lot of voices in this world today, but I want to tell you it is impossible to know God, to be saved, and to go to heaven apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him and through him alone. Father, when we read from your word, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We've never met anyone like him. We've never had anyone to offer us what he offers us. We've never had anyone to do for us what he's done for us. We've never had anyone who could come into our lives, make such a drastic, dynamic change as the Lord Jesus. I pray that in this hour, I pray that as I share the word one more time, that, oh God, you'll drive it home to our hearts. And I pray that there will be people in this day that make the wonderful discovery of knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way. Those who are in the process, I pray that you'll complete that process today because they will and choose to receive our blessed Savior as their Savior and as their Lord. Speak to us and speak through us now, and I pray you'll bless the spoken word based on the written word that we've just read. We'll give you all the glory, all the praise, all the credit, and all the thanks, Lord, for all that you do. Because we all ask it, believe it, and expect it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. And all God's people say together, amen. amen. Thank you. Please be seated and please leave your Bible open to the passage because I'm going to preach to you from the passage. Louise Fletcher Tarkington expressed the desires of many people when she said, I wish there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again where all our mistakes, all our heartaches, and all our selfish griefs could be cast like a shabby old coat at the door, never to be put on again, never to be remembered anymore. I'm discovering as you get older, you especially have to deal with these types of thoughts. In my travels, I run into more people who are absolutely living in bondage to their past, living in bondage to remorse and to regret. They simply cannot put the past behind them. They have difficulty forgiving themselves. Listen to me carefully. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Once you come to him and you repent of your sins, you believe and receive the gospel, and you extend to him that personal invitation to come into your life and change your life. From that moment on, I want you to understand something. God says he puts your sins behind his back to remember them no more. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. That's infinity. There's no limit to it. There's no way that it can be measured. And he never holds it against you again. Now, if God can forgive you and drown it all in his sea of forgetfulness, who are you and I not to forgive ourselves and to go on with God because of his grace? The best of the good news is this. Spiritually speaking, there is a land of beginning again. No person needs stay the way they are. In fact, God loves you and me just as we are. But praise his holy name, he loves us too much to leave us just as we are. A person's life can be made over again through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in verse 17. Look at that verse with me, if you will. This statement is couched in the context of what God has done for us in Christ. 
in particular through the ministry of reconciliation. If you look at verses 18 through 20, they deal thoroughly with reconciliation. Reconciliation refers to a change in relationship from hostility to love, from hostility to acceptance, from hostility to friendship. The Bible pictures you and me and all of mankind in our unredeemed state, in our lostness, as an enemy of God, hostile against God. When a person is saved, that basic relationship is changed from that of an enemy of God to a friend of God. Now, the heart of the gospel is in the first phrase in verse 19. Look at that with me, if you will. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I saw something one day I'd never seen before in that. The New Testament never speaks of God being reconciled to us. But it is always we who stand in dire need of being reconciled to him. Therefore, God acted in our behalf, and through Jesus Christ, he reconciled us to himself. It is because of his reconciling work that no person has to stay as they are. It is through reconciliation that transformation is made possible. Three simple things that the Holy Spirit has indelibly impressed upon my heart to share with you about the transforming power of Christ. You might just want to jot them down as we go and keep them for future reference or for posterity. All of them come right out of verse 17. First of all, I want you to see that the transforming power of Christ has a broad application. We know that it has a broad application because of what he says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone, that's a simple word, but would you mind underlining it or circling it in your Bible? You know what that means? It's for everybody. It encompasses all people. It excludes no one. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all start with a level playing field. We all must come to Christ. God may use different avenues, different streets, different people, different circumstances, different events to get us there. But we all must come to Christ and come to the cross to become one of his children. Do you remember that angel at the birth of Jesus said in Luke 2.10, I bring you good tidings which shall be to all people? Do you remember when Jesus gave us the great commission in Matthew 28.18-20? He said, go ye into all the nations. Mark in his account of the Great Commission in Mark 16, 15 said, go ye into all the world, all people, all nations, all the world. That's common New Testament terminology. That means that God's grace is made available and applicable to every man, woman, boy, and girl that walks the face of the earth, regardless of who they are, where they are, where they've been, what they've done, what they haven't done, what they have, or what they don't have. God loves all people. Jesus Christ died for every human being that's ever walked the face of the earth, and God has a will, purpose, and plan for every life. And by the way, We've got too many people trying to creep into our churches and various other places today and tell people that Jesus had a limited atonement, that he didn't die for everybody. He just died for certain elect 
people. My friend, I'm here to tell you today, I'd close my Bible and never preach another day if I preach it a Savior that had a limited atonement. There is absolutely no one for whom Jesus Christ has not died. He loves everyone. He has a purpose and plan, and it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I was reading one day about Luther Burbank, the great botanist. The man responsible for much of what we know about plants and flowers. He was asked about his greatest contribution. I was very intrigued by what he said. Listen to it. And I quote, if I made any worthy contribution to the world, it is the advancement and proof of a great principle of botany. That a plant, born a weed, on a plant, degenerated by the conditions of nature, does not have to remain degenerate. I have enunciated the principle that there is no plant so great an outcast that it cannot with skill and care be redeemed, retained, or regenerated. Unquote. My firm conviction and the promise of Scripture is that what the botanists discovered of plants, praise God, is also true of people. In Romans 8, the Bible speaks of the height, the width, the depth of God's love, and there is no limit to it at all. If you were to go back to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and read about these Corinthians people, these Corinthian people, read about these Corinthians who constituted the church at Corinth, you would be amazed, amazed at how evil, how wicked, and how guilty of debauchery Those people really were. In fact, they were so evil and wicked that many churches in our society, they wouldn't even want them on their church property, much less having them in their church. Obviously, the church at Corinth was made up of the absolute dregs of society. But just when it looked like all hope was gone, the Apostle Paul showed up in Corinth with a revolutionary message about the greatest revolutionary that ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they received the gospel, were gloriously saved, and God led Paul to lead them to organize a church in that very place. Thank God he didn't forget about them. Thank God he still loved them. The point is no person is so degenerate or so great an outcast that they cannot be redeemed, retained, and regenerated. Why? Because God's grace is greater than any of our sin. From the very gutters of Corinth, he lifted his church. I thank God for a long time now, nearly every day of my life, I get to tell people that God saves and changes and makes people new from the guttermost to the uttermost because the transforming power of God has a broad application. It's for everybody. No one is left out. When Jerry Vines was pastoring the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, he said that the wealthiest man in Jacksonville, according to Forbes, visited his church one Sunday morning. And he wrote on all four corners of a visitor's card, demand an audience with the pastor. So during the course of the next several days, that card came across Dr. Vines' desk. And he took that card and that card alone and began to pray for that man. After a couple of days, the Holy Spirit impressed upon his heart that he wanted to call him and invite him to be his guest for lunch. So he said he called the man and he extended the invitation. And you could tell over the phone the man was thinking about how he was going to respond. 
you've, you've talked with people over the phone, and you could tell that they were being very careful, and they were thinking about how they were going to respond to what you might have said to them. Dr. Vine said, while you're contemplating your answer, let me just mention a couple of things to you. He said, number one, I'm not going to ask you for a single thing. I praise the Lord and rejoice with you over the way he's blessed you, but you don't have a thing that I want, so I'm not going to ask you for anything. He said, number two, I want you to understand that I'm going to pay for the meal. Now, praise God, that's a tremendous breakthrough for a Baptist preacher right there. Amen, her? (laughs) And then he said, number three, I want to spend our entire time together talking to you about your personal relationship to God through Jesus Christ. The man said, I'll take it, preacher. That's the very reason I wrote that over that car. So Dr. Vines takes him to the university club, 27 stories high, overlooking the city of Jacksonville, the port, the marina, all tell stadium, all of it. And he said, the man no sooner got sat down in his chair. He said, preacher, I want to ask you a question. He said, do you believe there's such a place called hell? I want you to listen to the great man of God's answer because it's intriguing. He said, sir, I not only believe there is a hell, but he said, if there wasn't one, I'd give money to help start one. (laughs) Man said, that's the strangest answer I've ever heard a Baptist preacher give. He said, what do you mean by that? He said, let me ask you a question. He said, do you think Jesus Christ and Adolf Hitler ought to be living in the same place at the same time for all of eternity? He said, no, sir, I understand that. He said, let me ask you one deeper than that. Do you think that Jesus Christ and Satan ought to be living in the same place at the same time for all of eternity? He said, no, sir, I understand that. And Dr. Vines began to move to share the gospel with him. While he shared with him, the man looked at him and said, the man said, do you know who I am, preacher? And he said, well, who are you? He said, well, according to Forbes, I'm the wealthiest man in Jacksonville, Florida. He said, now, what do I have to do in order to become a Christian? Dr. Vine said, you have to do the same thing that the poorest man in Jacksonville, Florida has to do. You have to humble yourself before God, repent, call on the Lord, and ask the Lord to save you and take over your life. And right there in the university club with his soul winner's New Testament, he led the wealthiest man in Jacksonville, Florida to receive Christ as his Savior. He came and made it public in First Baptist. He was baptized. He became a triple tither to his church. And he began to give to mission benevolence, and evangelistic causes all around the world. Don't you think, God, that we love a Savior? And we know a Savior. We have a Savior. We can proclaim a Savior. And when you come to Him with an open, honest heart and mind, when you come to Him in brokenness, when you come to Him in repentance, He didn't have to check your financial portfolio. He didn't have to check your checkbook. He doesn't even look back at your past. He receives you gladly and applies His grace to your life because the transforming power of Jesus Christ has a broad application. If you look again at verse 17, not only does it have a broad application, but it has a strict limitation. Notice He not only says, if anyone be what? Look at this little prepositional phrase. Underline it or circle it. In Christ. Here's what I've always been thankful for. Notice he didn't say, if any man be in a church, if any man be in a baptistry, if any man be in a denomination, if any man be in a system, if any man be in a religion, he didn't say any of that. He said, if anyone be in Christ, the sphere of transformation is very strict and very limited. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. But by me, if you read that in the original language in which it was written, here's the way it literally reads. I am the true and living way. No man knows God other than 
through me. That's why the Bible said in Acts 4.12, Neither is there any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Save the name Jesus Christ. I had the privilege and opportunity of serving and ministering in Lenore City, Tennessee, which is about 20-25 miles southwest of Knoxville, as though you're headed toward Chattanooga. On Sunday night after the service, the associate pastor said to me, Brother Lynn, there's a man who lives down the foot of the hill from our church. Their church was sort of up on a moat. He said, on a sunny day, the shadow of our church steeple extends over his home. He said, his name is Bobby Harvey. He's 72 years old. And we take everybody who comes to our church as a guest preacher to see Bobby Harvey to try to win him to the Lord. And nobody's been able to do it. But we really feel like God wants to use you while you're here to do that. He said, would you go with me to see him? I said, preacher, I couldn't go before tomorrow afternoon. So we lined it up. We went down to Bobby Harvey's house. And he knew who I was and why I was there. Because before I ever crossed the threshold of his home, he threw his hands up. said, preacher, I know why you're here and you're wasting your time. He said, I tried religion for five years and it didn't work for me. I said, I understand, Bobby. I tried religion three times that long. It didn't do anything for me either. He said, then why are you a Baptist preacher? I said, because long before I ever could accept the call to preach, I had to become a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And a man took the Bible and explained to me the difference between religion according to men and redemption that can only be found in Christ. He led me to trust Christ, and I trusted him him alone, and he fully met my needs. I said, Bobby, I'm not asking you to try religion. I'm asking you to trust Jesus Christ. I'm not recommending or referring you to religion. I'm trying to relate you to Jesus Christ through the leadership of the Holy Spirit and through a living, loving, lifting relationship with him. He'll not only enter your life and change your life, he'll not only make you a new person, but he will enable you to cope with everything you face on a day-by-day basis. Please listen to me today. This is what the protesters, this is what the fake news, this is what everybody out there in society, all involved in things that bring nothing but destruction, need to hear. America, the church, and the world does not need any more religion. We have enough of that already. The Jews to whom Jesus came were among the world's most religious people. The Greek Roman world in which the gospel was first proclaimed and spread was filled with gods, temples, and religious rituals. What America, the church, and the world needs today is not religion. What America, the church, and the world needs today is Jesus Christ. Listen to me carefully, please. Religion is man's attempt to reach up to God. It's man's personal attempt to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. It's regulated by everything man thinks, says, and does. While biblical Christianity as taught by Christ and by the Bible is God reaching down to man and doing for man what he's totally and completely incapable of doing for himself. Thank God. I came to church this morning. Before I got out of my car, I was playing... The enlightened station. There came the cathedrals singing, oh, what a Savior. It was a confirmation of something you and I talked about last night, Pastor. Oh, what a Savior. He came to a lost, sick, doomed world. And he set forth the remedy, which is himself. Not a system of teaching, but himself. Not a code of law, 
but himself. Not just a body of doctrine, but himself. Not just a message, but the message himself. Not just a blessing, but the blessing himself. Not just a truth, but the truth himself. Not just an experience, but himself. Please walk out of here today understanding, please, that Christianity is not a set of doctrines. It's not a body of teachings. It's not a statement of creedal expressions. Christianity is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Christian means Christ in one. He is Christianity. And praise His name to be in Him is to be a new person. The past is finished and gone. The slate is wiped clean. I was preaching in a large prison in another state not long ago. I've been doing that for a long time. I, I, I did that when I was at Cottage Hill. I had preached in jails before I came to Cottage Hill. This is a large prison in another state. There were over a thousand men in this room. And one of the inmates was introducing me, and I hope he meant this as a compliment. I, I took it that way, but I thought about it afterwards. He said, we'd love for Brother Lynn to come and preach to us. He said, he's just like one of us. <laughs> and I know how he meant that, <laughs> but you couldn't help but think. But you know, I was just like them. Praise God, if it hadn't been for the grace of God, I might have been one of them for sure. I might have been sitting there that day instead of preaching to them. I thought a lot about him saying that. But a thousand men stood up and sang Amazing Grace. Man, when they sang that, cold chills ran up and down my spine. One of the inmates got up to give his testimony. He said, I want to translate what we've been singing. I want to give testimony to it. He said, what that song is saying is that the only way out is up. You see, we'll really begin to make progress in our world and in the church when we realize that the answer to crime and criminality is not recreation, although that's good for the body. It's not education, although that's good for the mind. It's not legislation, although that will help with a lifestyle. However, morals cannot be legislated. It's a personal thing that only comes through a change in a person's life. So it's not recreation, education, legislation. Praise God, it's salvation, and it can only be found in Jesus Christ. When I left Cottage Hill, I went to... I'm drawing a blank. I'm having a senior moment. Where did I go, Jabber, when I left college here? Jackson, Mississippi. I went to Jackson, Mississippi to pastor. We had a fine family visiting our church, a mother, a father, a 12-year-old son, an 8-year-old son. They'd not joined our church, but they were prayerfully contemplating it. They loved the Lord. They were fine people. The little 8-year-old boy was the apple of everyone's eye. He's one of those kids everybody picked at. They used to give him quarters to imitate and impersonate to people. Man, he was a feature anytime he was in a group. One Sunday afternoon, the two brothers were playing with about 20, 25 other kids on their street there in Jackson in a fine neighborhood. And a man came down that street who was not a bad man. He would never have done what he did if he hadn't been totally inebriated with alcohol. But in a drunken stupor, he lost control of his car, ran over that little eight-year-old boy, took his life. I've never seen a person's death affect a community a church, a county, a city, like that little boy's death. Our church tried to reach out to that family and minister to them all that we could. A man in our church came to me and said, Preacher, you go tell those people they don't have to worry about paying for the cost of that funeral. He said, I'll see that it's covered altogether. It's one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in ministry. They just don't teach you in school how to handle things like that. 
four days after the little boy died, or after he was buried, his daddy came to my office and he said, Preacher, they've moved the man who ran over my son from here to Vicksburg. They don't feel he can get a fair trial in Jackson, so they've changed the venue. Now, that's only 40 miles, as you know. And he said, he's in the Vicksburg jail. It's up on that hill overlooking the Mississippi River. And he said, Brother Lynn, he said, I have to go and see that man. And I want to know if you'll go with me. I'll be honest with you, I tried to talk him out of it. I said, are you sure you can handle that? I'm not sure I could handle that. He said, you could if the Lord told you to go, preacher. And you went, because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And he said, I'm going to see the man with or without you, but I would prefer that it be with you. I said, oh, no, sir, I'll be glad to go with you. So we drove to Vicksburg, went up to that old jail that sat up on the side of a hill overlooking the Mississippi River. One side of the river, you're in Mississippi. Across the river, you're in the state of Louisiana. We went into a conference room, and we were seated on one side of a table. In a moment, a deputy and an armed guard brought the man in and seated him on the other side of the table. The father turned to me and said, Pastor, I was hoping we could talk with him privately. Would you mind asking the guards to step outside? So I asked him, I asked the deputy, he said, well, that's not normal protocol, that's not normal procedure, but we'll trust you. He said, we'll be just outside the door if you need us. I said, fine. There was a long silence, and I'm sitting there thinking in my mind, now, how am I going to handle this? Especially if something happens here as the Lord's representative, just exactly how am I going to handle this situation? When finally the father spoke to the man, he looked across at me, he said, sir, I want you to look me right in the eye, because the man kept looking down, he couldn't look up. He said, I want you to look me in the eye, you don't have to be afraid. He said, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. He said, you do not know how every time I think about you, I literally want to break you in two. And he said, I'm ashamed and embarrassed at the thoughts I have of physically what I'd like to do to you. But he said, every time I began to dwell on that, he said, the Lord just speaks to me and stirs me and reminds me that he gave his only begotten son to die for me. And he said, just like the Lord, he not only reminds me that he gave him for me and for my family, but he reminds me that he gave him for you as well. And he said, it's too late for my family. He said, you've taken from me one of the most precious things in my life. But he said, if we could keep this from happening to anyone else, maybe my little boy didn't die in vain. And he took out his Bible and began to share the gospel with the man who'd run over his little boy. I never said a word. And he wound up leading that man to receive Christ as his Savior. Now, the man still had to go to the penitentiary. He still had to suffer the consequences for his awful, terrible deed. But he's out today, living in the Mississippi Delta over 40 years later and serving the Lord. But I walked out of that jail that day and I looked down across the Mississippi River into the state of Louisiana. I thought, dear God, oh dear God, if I could just bring every person that'll ever sit under the sound of my voice or hear me preach to hear and to see what I've seen today. They would know that Christianity works. They would know that you make a difference in a person's life. They would know that Jesus Christ is real because only the transforming power of Christ could prompt a man to lead the man to Christ that ran over and killed his little boy. My friend, don't tell me Christianity's not real. Don't tell me Christianity don't work, especially if you've not trusted. It's born the sands of time. And it will continue to do so until Jesus comes back. The transforming power of Christ has a broad application, if anyone. It has a strict limitation, be in Christ. But oh, I want you to see it has a grand implication. Look at the rest of the verse. He is a new creation. Behold, all things are passed away. All things are become new. He says we're a new creature, a new creation. Did you know it's possible to be a new person 
It's possible to be converted. It's possible to change. It's possible for people to walk in this building today. They're one way spiritually. Sit under the sound of the gospel. The Holy Spirit go to work. They make a decision and when they leave, they're a completely different person than they were when they arrived. You say, well, preacher, I want to ask you a question. I've always wanted to ask preachers. How is a person made new in Christ? It's obviously not on outward circumstances or in physical appearance. I mean, when a person becomes a Christian, brother, and be real about it, they still live in the same house. They're still married to the same person. They still attend the same school. They still work at the same job. You're absolutely correct. You say, well, then what's different and what is the difference? How are people made new? Listen to me very carefully. The essential difference is an inner change. When we get saved, we're given new thoughts, new motives, new attitudes, new desires, new strengths, new values, new hopes, because we have a new heart. You see, when Christ changes our heart, he then changes our behavior. This will help you understand a lot of things you see and hear in our day and time. What a person believes determines how they behave. If a person behaves incorrectly, it's because they've not believed the gospel and allowed the gospel to change them. Our character always predetermines our conduct. If a person's conduct is wrong, it's because they have a character flaw. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, can change a person's character. I'm all for social ministry. I'm all for helping to feed hungry people. I'm all for doing anything and everything to minister to people who have a need in any way. But listen, if I put food in their stomach, money in their pocket, clothes on their back, and I just let them go without telling them about our Savior and the difference He can make in a person's life, I've done them a bigger injustice than giving them aid and giving them help. I've never regretted committing my life to Christ to preach the gospel, and I've never regretted that I made the commitment one night when I was going to school where people were doubting the Bible, telling me I was a fool. I've never regretted to receive God's holy word and to tell exactly what the Bible says because people are not the least bit interested in what I say. But when I can stand up and say, God says, the Bible says, the Lord Jesus Christ said, it makes all the difference in the world. What I'm trying to tell you today is Jesus died for our sins so that you and I would not have to die in our sins. And by the way, he didn't just spill his blood, he shed his blood. Hebrews 9.22 doesn't say without the spilling of blood, there's no remission of sin. It says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You could spill something and still not shed anything. Jesus didn't just spill his blood, praise God. He shed his blood. It takes a living Savior to save a dying world. And only the Lord Jesus Christ can save a dying world. You see, someone said to me before the service, Brother Lynn, in my former life, you know everybody's got one. Indeed they do. Every saint has a past. But praise God, every sinner also has a future because of our Lord Jesus. For great sinners... It takes a great Savior, the one and only Savior, 
is the Lord Jesus Christ. I've had people hear me preach and they say, well, Brother Lynn, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. You don't know about my life. My life's different. It may be in some ways. But I want to tell you this today. God's not nearly as interested in where you've been as he is in what you are and where you go for the future. It's been a long time now, but I preached one Sunday morning in Savannah, Georgia. Over 2,500 people were present. I gave you the invitation and I led people to pray the sinner's prayer. When I asked for a show of hands, hands went up all over that building. Down on the second row, seated two seats in, was a 16-year-old boy. He raised his hand. I began to invite all those people to come and publicly profess Christ and follow him in baptism. He started out the aisle. He got to the end of the aisle, so helped me. His mother was seated on the end. She literally turned around sideways and held her arms out to block him and keep him from coming. I can still see him. It's been a long time ago, but I can still see him. But mother, I prayed the prayer after Brother Lee. I want to go. I want to be baptized. I want to do what God wants me to do. She's just pointing her finger at him. I've only left the platform in 53 years, seven or eight times, to go into the congregation after I preach. But that day I walked down to that second row and I tapped her on the shoulder. She was a member of our church. I called her name. She wheeled around. I said, surely you don't want to keep him from coming to make his profession of faith. She pointed her finger right up in my face, almost stabbed me in the nose with it. With a terrible scowl on her face, she said, Lynn Turner, I know my children better than you do, and I'm telling you, he's not ready. I said, well, when do you think he's going to be ready? He's as ready right now as he'll ever be. And the Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. She said, you're not going to cram religion down my boy's throat. I said, evidently, you hadn't been listening. I hadn't even mentioned religion. I just told him the truth. I told him what the Word of God says. I told him what Jesus said to him and promised him. And he's old enough to decide for himself and out of his free will and free volition, he chose to invite Christ into his heart. She said, well, you're not going to get my boy. I said, it's not me. It's the Lord. Now, let me tell you what her problem was. And listen, you listen to this carefully, please, because the church is filled with people like this. It's the first time she'd been in the church in over a year and a half. She was living in known public sin. Everybody knew about it. She boasted about it. And boasted about taking another woman's husband away from her. You know what her problem was? She knew if her son came and made public his profession of faith, it would expose her and she would have to choose between her sin and the Savior. And that Sunday morning in Savannah, she chose her sin. And she refused to let that boy come. It broke my heart. It's the last time. He told me when I went to visit him later that he was in church. It's the last time that his mother was in church. She died away from God. Twenty years later, I'm sitting with Pansy at the breakfast table in our home in Woodstock, Georgia. I'm reading the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. And I dropped it and I gasped for breath. Pansy said, what in the world's wrong? I read where this same young man, 20 years later at the age of 36, was sentenced to life in prison because he committed armed robbery and took the lives of two other people. My mind went back to that Sunday morning in Savannah, 20 years before. 
If she'd only let him come that day, perhaps he wouldn't be where he is now. And perhaps she would never have died away from the Lord. I'm saying to you today, God may have been speaking to you for a long time. He may have been really hounding your trail today. But if God's speaking to your heart and you know there's something he wants you to do and you need to do it, don't wait on anybody else or anything else. Don't wait on a feeling. You step out and take that first step in faith and you take his word for it. He'll take care of the rest of it if you'll trust him with it. And I want to say to you, don't ever become a stumbling block to someone else. You don't want people stumbling over you into hell. You say, well, they, they may be too young. The Lord will take care of that. Bring them to people who know how to talk to children and can help children or help young people or help adolescents or help adults for that matter. Let's don't be stumbling blocks. Praise God, let's be stepping stones to our Savior.